Hi, and welcome back to the Girls Who Gather podcast, a podcast sharing women's stories from a diverse range of backgrounds and stages of life, highlighting the way that they are building community, empowering other women, and walking out their calling. We're so glad you've decided to tune in. Our hope for launching this podcast is to extend the voice of Gather beyond the physical spaces where we meet in our cities, campuses, and apartments. With an incredible diversity of feminine voices, we want to create a catalogue of testimonies and inspirational stories that you and your friends can always return to. We will also be announcing Gather news, updates, and other exciting events coming up on this platform. Stay tuned for more from us as we journey through this next season together. Hello, listeners of the Gather podcast. Um, welcome to today's episode. My name is Hayoung, and I am the Community and Outreach Director um, of Gather. I know I'm a new voice um, with us today. We have Noelle, who is our lovely content director. You've definitely heard her before. And <laughs> our guest today, um, Dr. Mary Casabon. Um, she is a former professor of the University of Massachusetts, Boston of Applied Linguistics, and the current assistant director of the Brockton School Community Engagement Project in Lesley University. She was the former director for bilingual and ESL programs at the Cambridge Public Schools from 1994 to 2008. She has extensive experience in conducting research and evaluation and in delivering technical assistance to schools, districts, universities, and state departments of education. Welcome, Dr. Casabon. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Hayan. Thank you very much. Yeah, and um, we just wanted to kick off the conversation by asking a little bit about language and the process of language in building a person. So um, let's just hear a little bit about that. Yes, well, this is a, a very important question to me personally because I have thought about it um, ever since I was a very young child, but I'm going to go back as in my own memory, and when I think of language, I think of loss, the loss of language, which is not very uncommon for most uh, former uh, heritage uh, speakers. As we immigrate and come to the United States in particular, most people find that it is very difficult to continue to keep their language. They manage somehow to keep their culture But as culture and language are so inextricably linked, the uh, loss of language also means the loss of what I would call um, identity. This is very essential. And so what I have done uh, is to think about language, uh, culture, and identity a lot ever since I was a child. And uh, by the time I was um, an adult and working in communities of educators, I've dedicated uh, most, if not all, of my time to figuring out and then enabling communities and uh, along with others, um, how we can construct environments educational environments in particular, where children at a very young age will be able to embrace whatever heritage and native language was uh, once a part of their families to make it real, to make it whole, to make it authentic and practical. Um, 
So that is usually done through uh, programs such as um, bilingual programs, uh, dual language education, and uh, that type of thing. And as you're sort of building these programs and um, working with these communities, I was curious as to how you have personally seen people embracing their own language and how it's affected their lived experience. Right. Great question. That's a really good, that's a really good question. And, and I am going to go, if I may, if I may be indulged a bit um, in order to answer this question, I, I want to go back to a woman who was very important in my own life um, and how in many ways the challenges that our relationship presented helped me understand issues of language and culture in a very profound way. Yeah, I may. So I actually have a uh, have uh, these memories and the person is uh, Grammy. And um, what I'd like to do is actually, um, I, I have this memory that I have written down. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just going to write it, uh, read it to you. Um, Don't ask me no questions, just listen. Marilyn, come here, look. Grammy pointed at the open artesian well near the path leading to the salt spray rose-covered outhouse that bordered the woods. The well was just a huge raggedy hole in the ground, not like the well near the house that was raised above ground and had a pump handle. Grabbing my head, Grammy turned me to look down the well. What do you see? My head shoved over the well. I looked down and I saw a large decomposing brown hair floating on top of the water. Mm. I told her I saw a dead rabbit. She pushed my head down more. What else do you see? I, I see water, dirty water. What else do you see? I don't know. I can't see. It's too dark. Grammy seemed to like that answer. She let go of my head, and we sat down on a rock. I'm going to tell you a story that you must never forget. She had my attention. There was a little girl who used to play in our fields and she would come to the house. You saw how dark that water is. It means that well goes down to the center of the earth. That little girl was playing near the outhouse and she started running with her dog. I heard her scream. I ran out and I saw the dark water swallow her up. That was the end of her. She drowned and she went down the well. Her bones are still way down there in the deep. I don't remember what I said back to Grammy. She added, you fall down that well, you're not coming back. So this was one of my first memories of something really eventful happening and really important. And as I thought back, um, did I cry? I don't think so. Um, Did I have nightmares? Maybe. Did I fall down the well? Did I ever play near the well? No, never played near that well. Mm. So this is a point in time where I remember my grandmother, who was not particularly literate. I mean, she had um, a very limited education. 
Uh, this was a farm. We were on a farm at the time. She was, and I was visiting her on the farm as a young child. And I remember that um, her English was labored, even though I knew she had difficulty speaking German as well. And I started to think about what does this mean that someone is trying to express themselves in one language and it comes off very harsh and almost mm -hmm. very cruel. And yet maybe the language that they dream in perhaps is the language that they can't express themselves in. It, maybe it's a language of merit, uh, memory only. And I thought about that and what that means for people in general. And when people would sometimes, friends that I would have who would come over, would make fun of my grandmother, I, I thought that that was wrong, right? It, it was just wrong to me. And people should have the benefit of as many languages that they can possibly learn. So it, this is what really kind of started me out thinking about why language is so important. My grandmother never had the opportunity to advance in her, the language of her parents, perhaps. Um, but I knew that children, young children, would have that opportunity. So as I see individuals and, and many who have become uh, bilingual, what I see is an awakening that they tend to find themselves, that they feel more complete, mm -hmm. and that this, I guess, is the is the process that I would like everyone to have, because I do believe it's a window of knowledge into who we are, into our souls, and into others. Uh, yeah. Did I answer the question or is there more to the question that I probably didn't hear and just heard my own version? So I answered it that way. No, I think that was a great answer. I think it's really what you said about like dreaming or like a language of the past and the memory. I think that really speaks to how language can form just the very structure of the way that we think and that mental, like, um, like, oh, like when I was a kid, you know, like, and I, I also speak another language and I think um, there are words that I remember hearing that I don't know the exact meaning to and I cannot replicate, but that feeling is exactly just intact in my head in that specific language. And I think your story really beautifully brought that out. Um, Noel, if you wanna move on to the next question. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm so inspired already. And just sitting here and listening to you, um, Mary, as you've very much given us permission to refer to you as, um, I, I appreciate the vividness and the honesty of the story that you've opened with, because I think here at Gather, we're also known for being very metaphorical. Our themes are very visual and metaphorical. And I mean, I did not personally grow up speaking a language besides English, but one thing I will say which is kind of weird. I've never admitted it publicly, but when I hear words, I think of like sounds or I taste food or I see color. 
And I know that there's a condition called that. I just never realized. <laughs> I see you're nodding. Yes, Mary. yes, yes. I understand this, yes. the, the seeing color. I have a grandson yes. who uh, each day of the week has a different color. <laughs> I love that. Wow. Language is not just a vessel of making meaning in our lives or preserving culture, or some of the more traditional ways, but I think it's just interesting how in us, how we're wired as individuals, we engage with it on an organic level in different ways. And so I just want to ask you, Mary, now that we're sort of navigating from your more biographical part of your story and your personal roots with language, you know, how have you seen that really in your career, I guess, from an academic and professional Mm. standpoint, building a person, right? Especially Mm in situations where an individual might have to be multilingual or is trying to make sense and compartmentalize many languages in their exposure, how have you seen language um, together with building another person beyond yourself? What's maybe an early recollection? Right. Um, I think that as individuals come to recognize, because part of the work that we had to do uh, to change the minds of educators, right, to open up the possibility of of having young children in pre-kindergarten all the way through grade 12 um, have the opportunity of learning a language. It's really to tap in to the notion that there are going to be challenges. Mm. It's going to take courage and you're going to need to build coalitions because nothing worth doing or nothing that is truly accomplished well can be done without the partnership of others. So it's a, you know, and as I as I look to language, I mean, language, when we talk about language, I've been specifically talking about a language other than English rather than, you know, other than the dominant language. But there are also other forms of of language as, you know, Noelle, you were saying that, you know, you were thinking about, you know, uh, how colors and yes. how you associate that with different words. Yeah. Well, that might not be a language other than English, but it is mm-hmm. an, a language somehow that has become uh, your language. If you're associating yeah. memories, then it's a semantic map of sorts, isn't it? Right? Beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And, and so I think, I think that this is so fascinating so that we can look at someone's language someone's body language i tend to use my hands a lot and (laughs) you know it's just the way i am right and and sometimes you know i'll see people looking at my hands and then i'll realize oh that's my body language that maybe Mm -hmm. that person is finding offensive so maybe i'll just fold my hands or or cross my arms or or do something else with them so there's, or, or the shrugs or the eye rolls that, you know, our teenage friends are so good at. Right? <laughs> um, it's, it's all a part of, of language and it's really simply communicating, right? 
that's all it is. So it's, yeah, there is a la- there are other languages besides that. So when I, when, when I would say, yeah, when we're dealing with folks and we're trying to change people's mind, you have to, you have to read, read their language. And it's not necessarily as ours Grammy used to say, uh, she was convinced that the newspaper that not that she would bring in the newspaper in the house and she would she would say to me, do you know what it's saying between the lines? Can you read me what it's saying between the lines? And I'd go, no. I know no. what you mean, Grammy, but I'm not sure how to do it, right? But in essence, we have to be able to do that sometimes with, with folks so we understand where they are. And, and those are the kinds of, mm, it's a way of notifying us. Do they want us to go on? Are they ready? Or do they need more support? Or, you know, is there a fight brewing? All of those things, right? So I think language is communication. And communication, to me, is about relationships. I'm so glad that you said that keyword relationships, because that kind of leads to my next question. And I know Haiyang and I together, we're going to get deeper into what you do daily and community by community in your professional life. But sort of staying on the surface, you know, when we're building even the imagery of a construction site, it's corporate, right? It's communal. It's Mm -hmm. multiple persons occupying different roles in the construction of of a thing to serve a particular purpose. Um, And I I feel like at the risk of sounding kind of reductive here, we could say in a very simplified way that people and communities function similarly. Raising a child in a community, certain things they hear semantically or colloquially, and they start to use that in their language. If both parents speak a variety of languages, maybe they pick up different accents or different language varieties. And I know for myself personally, I have a lot of these these jargony words around language because I studied anthropology at NYU. I was a colleague of Hyung's, a classmate. Um, Graduated a year ahead of her just when the pandemic hit. (laughs) But I really found the linguistics unit fascinating because community is so crucial to human life and human development. Um, And so I want to ask you as a leader in these different language communities that you're designing programs in and collaborating, I'm sure, is a huge part of your role you know, what have we found is the merit of community in language education, in building language programs? Mm. How important is it to have a diversity of voices, even the person that you're working with in the community they come from, their voices? Yeah, it's essential. Without the, the voices of those whom the language represents and the culture represents, um, you really cannot have an authentic program. What you mm. might what you can develop is uh, what is called a foreign language program or a world language program in -hmm. which you teach from a textbook and uh, you know, the, the, the syllabus is, is based on um, oftentimes artificial readings, um, uh, sometimes drills, um, memorization and probably a lot of the non-language or English thrown in so that the students understand what it is. I do not advocate for those kinds of programs. I advocate mm-hmm. for programs where if you're going to teach, for example, uh, Mandarin, then you bring 
students who speak Mandarin together with students who speak English together and possibly even other languages. And therefore Mm -hmm. you develop a a community of learners where they will be learning together to communicate together, to establish that kind of uh, reciprocity, which is the reciprocity I call this of need for the other. And if you can establish that, what you're finding is that not only will the children have these kinds of friendships that you would want them to have, because we're trying to not create barriers, right? Mm-hmm. Not by saying one language is better than the other, you know, I, all of that, which we find sometimes in, in schools and in high schools in these foreign language or world language programs. But in a, in a, a more of a dual language environment, you have a mixed student population and therefore you really need to reach out to the community to find out what are the community needs. And if the community feels that this is valuable, then what would be, um, what would they like to see incorporated? So rather than have um, textbooks, uh, you might have um, uh, modules and, and, and more of a thematic based curriculum, of course, based on language standards in both languages, because you don't want children to lose out in either language. Um, but much more relevant. And therefore, Noel, to your question, you're you're also cutting down on the jargonish, if that's a word. Yep. Um, <laughs> I might have <laughs> invented it. Well, because when we, we speak to folks, just like I could not have spoken to my grandmother, you know, of, about lots of the terms that we use in linguistics because, well, she might have given me a backhand. Um she wouldn't have understood it. And if you want to make yourself understood, you have to speak in a language that's understandable. And so therefore, when you're dealing with these communities, with these uh, uh, linguistic communities, you bring folks together, but you speak in a language that people can understand and you allow them to speak back in the language which is the best for them. And if you need to have... Uh, interpreters, then so be it. That's what you do. That's part of the experience. But it's really to make it all um, under, understandable, useful, practical, and then reflected in um, the classroom. Right. So fantastic. Yeah. I'm not one for jargon. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's a gate, a barrier almost. It is a barrier. You're right. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because I feel like jargon can actually speak to what you were saying earlier, Mary, about having to read between the lines. Um, I, um, you know, I spent some time living in Korea and my Korean is at best mediocre. And I have had to use jargon to cover up the fact that my Korean is not great. (laughs) <laughs> to make it seem like I am reading between those lines because I'm trying to read the room, like, you know, come up with like, oh, what's like the right term to use with this group of people and like figuring sort of like making my way out in the dark. And I feel like jargon was actually a way to do that for myself. And I was wondering if you take that into consideration, like how do children at a young age as they socialize, because they learn, they pick up languages so quickly, how do they read between the lines and how do you sort of use that to the strength of the curriculum, to the program? I'm wondering if you've ever thought of that. 
Yeah. Well, just to just a little comment on your um, on your Korean, which I'm sure is much better than mediocre. Just the fact that you speak it is is amazing. And congratulations. Um, there's a word in Korean. Um, uh, the English spelling is something like N-U-N-C-I. So I'm not sure how you pronounce right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And doesn't that have to do with being able to read people? right? And to really notice what, right? So again, that's really a, a part of your heritage culture, right? Uh, that's it's this, a huge, yeah, it's a huge term in like mentioned world, it, right? because I had almost forgotten that word. I don't use it very often, but when you mentioned how, you know, you were, what you said using jargon, but I really think you were, you were using your own nunchi to figure out what's going on and how to respond. Um, but you know, with, with, with young, with young children, as they're learning a language together and the advantage of having kids learn together is that, uh, a lot of the, uh, kind of, uh, stereotypical things that we, that, that, that happen because we can't say it doesn't happen, but that, that the children do, uh, think about stereotypes as they, grow older and we see that reflected in middle school where you you know you have your jocks and you have your this and you have your that and all of that at the lunchroom but what we found with these dual language programs is that the kids tend to not differentiate themselves so much either they mm. as they become part of each other's language and culture they um they really come to understand each other in another in a different way, and so the whole notion of the capital other or l'étranger is not there, right? Or it's lessened to a a great degree, and um, so this is also part of which I think is really important because, well, as I think about what's happening uh, right now. Ukraine, if I could just be indulged mm -hmm. for a minute on that. It's mm -hmm. like, how, 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 how can this be happening? How can, how can one country really want to dominate another in such a way as to subsume it um, and, mm -hmm. and all that's wow. happening? And I think, well, they learned at one point, they learned about the other and they vilified the other, and they want the other. Um, maybe that's kind of simplistic, but it's it's just a, a way of thinking that if if we could really work with kids when they're when they're young, and if they can really truly understand each other, and their families can understand each other, we would go a long way in eradicating um, so much of the of the differences um, that seem to exist and go on to adulthood, uh, the prejudice, the biases, the, the hatred, uh, all of these things. So that, that's one of the major hopes of dual language education, if it is done right, that it will create a more harmonious society.
that. And that certainly speaks to the sustainability of these programs. Like mm -hmm. it's not so much the knowledge of the acquisition of the language itself. It's so it's more the relationships that you acquire and that you really build from being able to communicate in such ways. And um, if you can just speak briefly as to like how you build in that idea, the concept of sustainability as you um, work with these communities. Sure. Well, I think it's a social responsibility comes on mm. as an important um, feature of these programs early on. And as we look at uh, students and as we look at their accomplishments and as they grow, they tend to um, become advocates, right, for uh a social responsibility, social justice, um, and tolerance that we do not see typically in other kinds of educational environments. Mm. Yeah. That's so fantastic. Oh, my goodness. I feel like I'm back in my, my anthropology <laughs> seminar classes again. It's just... Well, inner social scientist is rejoicing. And, oh, um, that's great. Well, you're going back to school soon, so. You know, <laughs> shout out to Johns Hopkins Science. Thank you for letting me in. Oh. <laughs> but, um, but Mary, I, I want to switch, switch gears a little bit in this conversation because I think we can't talk about, you know, building with language or all these different ways that as women in our field, we're, we're building I mean, to be a little, again, simplistic again, but like building a better world where that's what we're striving well, for. We're, yes. we're seeking to a world where we don't kill each other. Yes. <laughs> that would be great if we could do that. You know, if we could build peace, if we could build cultural understanding, even if we just begin with tolerance, I think, as you pointed out in your last point, it goes a long way. And in many ways, not just building structures or programs or things mm -hmm. that will continue on, but being bridge builders. So even if we aren't the ones to cross the bridge, then someone else can come and benefit. But I feel like we can have this conversation without recognizing what happens to you as the vessel that is the educator, as the vessel that goes into these spaces with knowledge, with power, with authority, with expertise, but with humility. What does it take from you that you recognize is costly, your energy, your time, what are you continually having to build in yourself, mm. Mary, to continue mm. doing the work that you're you're so excited about right. and you're passionate about? Well, I think I have somewhat maybe an advantage of having been in the field and as I mm. went really back to my childhood for so long, right? Um, and I spoke about challenges, and one of my adages is that challenges hold promises, mm. and that mm. um, to expect the unexpected, that's another one, and to embrace chaos. These are, this is just sort of what I believe, and when I work with groups, and um, we're starting to form something, whether it's something in education or maybe just exploring um, a new idea that, that could lead to something beautiful or creative. It's how do you build collective strength? And well, building collective strength is, for me, it's listening more. 
And um, listening more, talking less, and really promoting the ideas of others. Uh, Part of the reason I went into research and evaluation is I wanted to sort of deconstruct, you know, what happens? What happens in, in, in these environments where things really work and when things don't work? And how can we help figure out, especially when, you know, a, a, a school district might say, well, what is it that we're not doing right? Because So you, you really need to go back and you really need to look at all of these things. And inevitably, it's the creation of silos and these silos become inst- institutionalized within these, these uh, you know, societies, these districts, and there is very little connection. So I think that that is like primary. How do you, how do you bring people together? Now, if we're talking about, uh, you know, um, mentoring others or, you know, uh, creating something i mean how do you how do you do it in such a way that everyone can feel safe and everyone can be vulnerable and um everyone will be listened to because usually the the the, sometimes these quiet folks they have a lot to say if um they're given the opportunity right yeah, and and it's really making sure that their voices are heard. That's powerful, and it's very important to the work that is so close to developing a person um, and preserving that sense of, yeah. I guess, empowerment or personhood, or I can advocate for myself or articulate or learn how to articulate what I need in different contexts, and being careful not to, I guess take that, that access away from someone, but rather saying, how can we increase? How can we actually enrich it with other people in that same process of discovery as you've shared? And that's really, it's exciting to know that there are all kinds of spaces where that activity is happening. Yeah. These are spaces that are, that I think are essential, Noel, you know, as we, as we can uh, create an environment, um, it is that respect and trust where individuals can feel free to say what they think. And also as individuals, we also can't always be a hundred percent serious, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though I believe that every ground we're in, every time we cross the threshold, we're in the sacred ground. I do believe that, but mm-hmm. we can't be afraid to, to laugh and, and, mm-hmm. and to cry yes. and, and to commiserate and, and to show that, you know, that we're not always as strong as we might appear, that it's okay, because that's really important. I think it's really important for women. And I think that oftentimes um, women, uh, especially in a, a situation where they may be in the minority and in a, in a, in a group of um, it's, 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 not always easy and and i and i think that these are these are situations that we need to talk about yes and we need to figure out you know together how how we can make it make it better right because we don't need to 
accept the unacceptable. Mm. We ought not to accept the unacceptable. Yeah. I love these short um, adages of yours, Mary. I know. I can't help it. I just, that's no, so I love it. <laughs> I want to like, I want to like put hangnails on my wall or something. Um, and, you know, I think my favorite one was the first one you shared and that was challenges hold promises. And I, I don't even need to ask you to know how just, or just to even begin to understand how many challenges you've probably had to face in your, in your decade long career. Um, so I, I guess for our last question of this conversation, I wanted to ask what promises have your challenges um, sort of born um, in your, you know, in the past years that you've been in the education field? And what promise do you continue to hold yourself to? Yeah, that oh, wow, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I guess it's a, the challenge um, uh, because once I decided that after I had um, helped others, uh, you know, collaborated to develop the kinds of programs that I really thought were very important and viable, as we've already talked about, uh, I, I, I wanted to go on in my career to do other things. Um, and so teaching at the university level was important. And I did that and actually in a variety of, of, of universities. And then to do some uh, research and, and evaluation because that was also important. And so in each environment that I've gone into, um, there are challenges. And in more recently, um, as I'm working with the, uh, the Brockton community, on the parent engagement uh, project for Lesley University, uh, I I really chose uh, to go out into the community, and um, uh, uh, in particular, I've been working with a Cape Verdean um, organization. Uh, Cape Verdeans represent about. 80%, I think, of the oh. uh, language uh, speakers in, in, in Brockton. And wow. I had uh, worked very extensively with, um, with uh, many others, uh, especially Latino, uh, you know, and uh, our family is, um, my, my husband's Cuban, so we, we speak Spanish at home and my children all speak Spanish and I've worked extensively with Latino populations and also with a Mandarin and a Portuguese and um, Amharic and, uh, you know, uh, Korean, uh, many populations, but I hadn't worked extensively with Cape Verdeans. And mm. so that was a, a, a learning curve for me. I, I went in and very, I had to be, very honest with these women who have this organization that um, you're the experts, but I didn't say that they were the experts because I wanted them to like me. I, I said they were the experts because it's true. Right. And I said, you, you're going to lead here. And my role is really to mentor more than anything else. Right. Because of my own experience. And that was a new situation for me, um, you know, uh, at a fairly advanced age. And I think that these are the kinds of challenges that we can come into. And if we do go into them, 
with a thought that it will be done, it can be done, and we don't necessarily have to do it alone. And having worked with uh, you know, these women, I have learned probably a lot more than they have learned from me. But that, but they have done wonderful things during this time. Yeah. So it's kind of like building building capacity, right? It's it's building capacity, helping others build their capacity to do more than they thought they could, because they always can, always. Yeah. So good. What a powerful note to end on. Mary, we are so grateful. Hi, Young. I don't know about you, but I'm just like, again, this feels like a deep dive into a field that I just think is so beautiful the way that you and your career have embodied it and Mm -hmm. truly embody it. You have from your own personal story, how we started this conversation and the early words of your Grammy. And it's, it's interesting that you refer to your grandmother's Grammy because I also refer to my grandmother as Grammy. So there's that semantical similarity, (laughs) but like tracing this theme of community and working with others, even the clients and people and communities that you've served to use language as a tool for building and all the different varieties that you've laid out in this conversation. So I, for one, feel enriched. I know our listeners are feeling enriched. Hi, Young, how are you feeling? What are you taking away from this wonderful chat? I'm blown away. (laughs) I mean, I am just sort of, I'm in awe of your philosophy on language and just how Mm -hmm. it's it's really a tool um, in in your like toolbox of, expertise and knowledge is, but it's really just a tool in order to get to know someone. And I think that is just something that, you know, we, we came into this conversation thinking how we use language to build a person, but it's really, how does it build communities? How does it build link, like, you know, like these relationships. And I think that's just so beautiful. It's all, it's everything gathers about we're building communities. So um, that's, that was a really amazing point to um, discover. Um, but yeah. Yeah. May I say thank you to you both? Um, oh, this was a lot of fun. I hope I didn't ramble, but you know, <laughs> perhaps that, that happens. But I, I want to leave you both with a with a question for something for you to think about, and and maybe uh, help me with it. And this is just something to think about for the future, because. Um, as I, I think about women and our needs, and I'm using the collective term for all women, right? Mm-hmm. So how can cultural, racial, and linguistic differences and intersecting identities be accurately reflected in leadership practice? Mm-hmm. So just at some point, you know, if ever, there could be a roundtable discussion. I'd love to hear what you have to say on that. That's so good. What a timely question. And honestly, Hi Young, it's powerful that you're here because you're such a key person on our team for our listeners. Hi Young does so much behind the scenes with our location directors, looking at our gather values, listening to the guest voices like Mary's and what they do. And I think churning out just a lot of suggestions and pillars that put the beams in place to build a community that embodies the answer to that question. Um, I don't know, Young. I feel like this is not only a challenge for you, but also for me thinking about content. Um, shout out to our other directors also on our team and new women who have since joined us. But 
I think that's a powerful question, Mary. And I think our organization, we strive to be the answer to that question. I'm passing the torch. We, we have hours long discussions on that question. We're always it's, like, how do we do this? Where are the tools, the people? What do we do this? So definitely timely. I, I agree. Absolutely. Ladies, this has been so amazing. I want to thank you both for your time and thank our listeners. Thank you. It's been another amazing Gather episode family. We thank you so much for joining us for today's conversation. As always, you can visit us at thegirlswhogather.com as well as follow us on our Instagram at girlswhogather to hear more about what we do, our heart as an organization, and to find out more about our next events because we might be in a city near you. Be also sure to tune in for more episodes for season three. We'll be releasing them weekly for the rest of season three. And as always, we're so grateful for you. And until next time, bye Gather Girls. To all our listeners, thank you once again for tuning in. We hope you feel loved and encouraged by today's content. Be sure to stay tuned for more exciting updates and our Gather news on our Instagram, at Girls Who Gather, as well as our website, www.thegirlswhogather.com. Also remember to share and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Be on the lookout for season updates, announcements, merch, media, meetups, and more. There's always something for you to be involved in and a place to belong. Until next time, bye Gather Girls!